0: the book of Luke chapter 12 Jesus spoke these words he said I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled ah as we begin a new year we do so with the idea of lighting the fire and getting us moving toward what God wants us to do our speaker today is dr. Brian Starr from Lovebook Christian uh, dr. Starr would you come and we're ready to listen and uh, anxious to hear what you have to say to help us light the fire again good Good morning, it is a blessing to be back with you at the Colonies, it's been since August since I've had the pleasure of being with you and let me just say that, that this kind of students you send our way for, who are associated with this church, either members or our family here, just some of the very best students we have uh, at LCU, I think about Sarah Flatt and Holly now Hefner and I think about Abby White, they are just delightful, so you must be some, doing something right here in Amarillo. It is cold outside. I woke up yesterday morning in Lubbock, and I looked at the temperature. It was seven, and just for fun, because I knew I'd be here today, I looked to see what it was here in Amarillo, and it said it was negative zero. Now I found that interesting because I didn't know that zero took an algebraic sign. But apparently it does here in Amarillo, so you're special. I. I didn't know what winter was Uh, when I was growing up. I grew up in a little town south of San Antonio, and and, and in the winter of 1983 my family moved to Abilene which is not a cold climate but uh, a particularly freakish cold front moved down and kept the temperatures below 32 for a week. And I had duties outside every afternoon and I was attending to our sheep and I was cold. I found out what winter was like, and I found out what it was like to be cold, but at the end of my duties outside, I would split some firewood, and I would bring it inside, and when my dad got off work, he would light a fire. And I liked that. I liked it so much, that I'd bring my blanket in, and I would sleep all night by that fire, just taking in that glorious warmth. Now I am struck by how many similarities there are between our physical existence and our spiritual existence. And just as it is possible to be physically cold, have you not found that it's also possible to be spiritually cold? It can happen gradually or it can happen all of a sudden, but you wake up one morning and you realize that it's been so long since you've prayed or spent time with the Lord and His Word or living out something intentionally to embrace his calling in your life, and you realize that spiritually it's time to light the fire. I think that's the context in which Timothy finds himself and this older apostle sitting in a Roman prison awaiting his own death has to write to Timothy to remind him it's time for that fire to be lit again. We're going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 1. I invite you uh, to turn there in Scripture. But I want you to think about the context of 2 Timothy. When you read 1 Timothy, when you read 2 Timothy, you find an apostle having to teach this young minister to again and again and again confront false teaching. Now, the attacks that come from the outside of the church are bad enough, but the worst ones are the ones that come from within, are they not? And over and over and over again, Timothy is having to confront false doctrine. And it seems, from the context of this letter, it's simply wearing him out. We've gotten a lot of mileage out of false doctrine and teaching about false doctrine in churches of Christ, but we we would absolutely quail in the face of the false doctrines that Timothy was having to face. Paul doesn't mention many of them, but here was one. Some are going around in the church and saying, the resurrection's already happened. We're already in heaven. Think about that. Think about the implications of that. This is as good as it gets. You're you're still having worldly problems? Oh, you must not have made the you must not have made the cut. That's kind of rough, isn't it? That that's tough false teaching and Timothy is having to co- confront this again and again and it seems to just have worn him down to the point where he probably just doesn't care anymore. And he's cold. And it's time for the fires to be relit. So this reading from 2 Timothy chapter 1, by the way, I had a PowerPoint for you, but our technology is failing. It was a very simple and pedestrian PowerPoint, but you can imagine it in your mind as being outrageously good. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience as night and day. I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, that you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet This is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. The word of the Lord. And may God add his blessing to this reading of his word. I'd be remiss if I didn't start where Paul does by reminding us of who lights the fire. Ever since we were as little as the kids who just went out to children's worship, we have had a desire for independence, right? I want to do things on my own. If I see something well done, I think, I want to learn how to do that and I want to be able to do it on my own. And that can be a healthy thing to an extent, but God reserves some things unto Himself and He says to us, You can't do that on your own. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. This salvation and this fire of the Spirit that comes is a gift from God Himself. And a particularly humbling thought is this. It was ordained before time even began. It was ordained before time even began. God had all of this planned out. He had our creation planned out. He knew we would fall and he had a plan to save us even then. This gift of God is truly from him and it's not because of anything we have done. It is God who lights the fire. Our job is simply to fan the flame of the spark that God has already provided. You see, for Paul, there are only two choices we have. This fire that is given, and if you read throughout Paul, we can do one of two things. We can quench it, or we can fan it into flame, and those are the only two choices. And every day we've got to decide, am I going to fan into flame this spark that God, by the power of His Spirit, has given to me. And then Paul turns his attention to what does this fire look like? And he uses three descriptors, but first he starts with a negative image. He says, this fire that we have, this spirit that God has given us, is not a spirit of, and your, your word is probably translated timidity or something like that. Do you see that in your text? And that's what I read from when I read from the NIV. A more accurate translation is something like, It does not give us a spirit of cowardice in battle. Now, Paul's sitting in a Roman prison. He's seeing lots of centurions and lots of military emblems around him. And so he uses a lot of military imagery, some of which we'll unpack in class here in a little bit. But the image here is the spirit that God has given us is not a cowardly spirit. It doesn't run away from a fight. It's not timid. I have to confess to you, though, sometimes my own spirit is. Can you identify with that? The spirit that I have within me sometimes is ashamed to tell people about Jesus. And so instead of saying something and putting in a good word for Jesus and telling others about this good news that Jesus brings to light and he brings to life, I say nothing at all or I substitute something else. So instead of sharing Jesus with people, I'll share something about good character or traditional values or conservative politics and hope that that will somehow suffice and I have discharged my duties of being salt and light. In short, the spirit I have within me sometimes is a timid spirit, a cowardly spirit. That's not bold enough to talk about Jesus, but that's not the spirit that God has given us. It's certainly not the spirit that Paul demonstrated. He spoke of Jesus time and time and time again to the point that it hurt, to the point that it got him beaten, and to the point that it got him imprisoned, and to the point, his church history tells us, to the point that it got him killed, but he was never ashamed because Paul's spirit was bold, because Paul's spirit was enlivened and set on fire by the Holy Spirit Himself. It's not timid, Paul says. The fire that God has put in you instead is a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and self-discipline. Now, immediately when we hear that word power, our human flesh goes in a certain direction. And I think that's why Paul adds the next two descriptors. Let us park just for a moment on what a worldly vision of power looks like. A worldly vision of power looks like, I get what I want, and I can force you to do what I want you to do. That's worldly power, correct? It's been that way since the fall of man. It's been that way. Did you know that we just celebrated at Christmas the 950th anniversary of the coronation of William the Conqueror? You remember him? William uh, over there in Normandy he rules that area and he looks across the English Channel and there's a little island over there It's called Great Britain. He said, you know, I kind of like to rule that too. So he does crosses the English Channel in September according to history he liquefied the intestines of the king of England destroyed their armies burned their villages forced their nobles to work the land that they used to own, but now William owns, so that he can enjoy the tax revenue. That's how worldly power worked back then. It's how it works today. It's not how Christian power works. Christian power is what Paul described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Fascinating chapter. Read it this afternoon if you want something good to read. Paul is describing a vision that he's had, and it's so potent that he speaks of himself in the third person. And this vision was so, so stunning, this heavenly vision, that he could not put it into words, and even if he could, he said, I would not be permitted to tell you what I saw. It's kind of like today we would say, if I told you I'd have to kill you. It's just humans aren't allowed to hear what Paul has heard and what Paul has seen. And he's elated, but to keep him from becoming too proud, this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, is given to him. And he appeals three times or three seasons or for three years, depending on how you want to translate that Greek phrase, for God to take it away. And what's God's response? Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is what? My power is made perfect in weakness. And it's, that's not new. Paul was having to learn it for the first time. We've got to learn it for the first time. But God has done this throughout history. He didn't select Israel as his chosen people because they were the greatest people. He chose them because they were the least He didn't choose choose Gideon because he was a mighty warrior. Gideon was a mighty warrior because God was with him, right? Gideon was the least person in the least tribe of an oppressed nation. And so he gets together this ragtag army that's a joke compared to the army he's gonna have to fight and God says it's way too many, it's way too strong. You might get some inkling in your head that you did it, narrow it down to 300. And all you boys have to do is make some noise. I'll fight the fight, God's power is made perfect in human weakness. See, when we get into our heads that it's own power that's fighting the fight and God departs and we're reliant on on our own power, we are weak people. But when we realize that our power is insufficient for the task and we invite God's power in, then if God is for us, who can be against us? the Spirit's power is so much stronger than we can even begin to imagine. It is not this worldly power that says, I force my way upon you. It's a very different kind of power. That's why Paul uses two other descriptors that we've got to think about a little bit. He uses the word love and he uses the word self-discipline all in this context of what this Spirit's fire, power, really looks like. So let's think about the power that comes from love for just a moment. And we, we, we could spend a whole sermon series, of course, just talking about the power that comes from love. But that is a seemingly weak power, and at the same time, even though superficially it may seem weak, at the end of the day, it is the strongest power of all. I want you to think, now, I had a picture of this, so you're just going to have to visualize this and use your imagination, all right? Imagine I've got two instruments of war up here. You've got to arm your person who's going to defend you to go out into the battlefield. Over here is a sword. It's about this long. It's really sharp, well-crafted. It's really long. Over here we've got a rock. It's about the size of my fist. Which would you like to arm your warrior with who's going to go defend you? The sword or the rock you take the sword. This isn't hard, right? I mean, if a person's got a good arm and they're pretty accurate, maybe they can hurl the rock with sufficient velocity where it's going to take out the other person, right? But if they miss with the rock, they're done and the sword's going to lop their head off and that's the end of the battle, correct? That's an easy thing. What if I told you, though, the picture of the rock I had was a kind of rock called uranium? Hmm? And the nuclear force that holds that matter together is powerful enough when unleashed to destroy a city the size of Amarillo in a moment. You see, what meets the eye, even in the physical world, is not all ultimately reality all the time, is it? The nuclear force that holds that matter and that rock together can wipe out the city of Amarillo that quickly when it's unleashed. There's a great irony in power. That which appears strong is actually weak, and that which actually appears weak is actually strong. Now, the kind of power that appears strong throughout the landscape of world history is the power of fear, correct? Why do nations fear America? Well our economic power and the fact that we've got a little rock, a lot of little rocks and intercontinental ballistic missiles, right, makes us feared. If we unleash our economic power against a country, we can crush them. If we unleash our military might against a country, we can crush them. That's how humanity has always existed. It's how William of Normandy crossed the English Channel and inspired those who survived to follow him. They didn't want to follow him. But when you put the foot on the neck and say, I'll kill you if you don't, you can get your way, correct? That's how power works. It worked in November, didn't it? The election was won based on, largely, fear and anger. And if it had gone the other way, it would have been won on fear. Worldly power often rests on fear. Now, God has pulled the fear lever before in history, correct? I want you to go back to Mount Sinai and the picture of that. I really had a cool picture of Mount Doom. Which was proximating Mount Sinai from the Lord of the Rings, all right? And there's this fiery mountain. Do you remember that scene? God assembles his people there on that same mountain where God had called Moses and promised, once you've done what I've said, you're going to worship me on this mountain. And it is a fearful scene. The people are on their face, flat on their face, before this God who appears with loud trumpet sounds and trembling earthquakes and fire and smoke and thick darkness where God is and the people are terrified and they don't want to be in the presence of that God. How long did that motivate them to keep the commands of God? few days. Within a few days, they're building an idol and having an orgy. God has showed us that the most fearsome being of all, can deploy the fear and it only goes so far. There is a power greater than fear and he showed that to us most potently at the cross. So a son Jesus comes down and he's tempted and one of the temptations is Satan says, bow down to me and I will give you all the worldly power. What does Jesus say? No. And the crowds try to take him and make him king by force. And what does Jesus say? No. And Peter takes out the sword and he strikes the enemy of Jesus who's trying to arrest him. And what does Jesus say? No. And he gives his body over to be beaten and humbled and spat upon and nailed to a piece of wood that he had made with nails from iron that he had created, and he let his blood be shed. Every kingdom of earth has been founded on the blood of its enemies, and every kingdom of earth has fallen or will fall. There's one kingdom that was founded on the blood of its founder who bled for us because he loves us, and that kingdom. Is eternal and the disciples saw it and they finally got it and they would not only run through a brick wall for that guy they would die for him the power of love is the greatest fire power the church has it is that love of Christ that compels us that has conquered us and it is that love which will go out and conquer the hearts of people in the world who need to hear the gospel of Christ. But it's not just love. God is love, but God is also holy, and he calls us to a life of self-discipline. We wouldn't have a whole lot different to offer the world if we just said, we love you, right? That sounds a whole lot like uh, what the world has to offer right now, where... What was once a subordinate virtue of tolerance is now viewed as the only virtue of all. Just tolerate, just accept whatever people do. That's hardly good news because that news says your past is going to dictate your future and your future can be no better than your past. But what Christians have to offer is also a love that transforms our lives into something that they're supposed to be, something better than they've ever been before. As Paul put it to Titus, it is God's grace that teaches us to say no to unrighteousness and to worldly passions. You see, this grace of God not only forgives our past sins, but it can transform our lives to where we're people who live lives that are unchained from those fetters and those slaveries of sin. God offers us the power of love and the power of of holiness, and he calls us to share that with the world. But let's be honest about this. Have your hands ever been so cold that when you put them by the fire to warm them up, it hurt? This morning might have been like that for you, all right? When you are spiritually cold, it's the same way. When you start to light the, f- when God starts to light the fire and you start into the flame, it's, it's not a warm feeling at first. It's a baneful feeling at first. And the question that we have to ask is, why go through that? Paul puts it bluntly to Timothy. He says, if you heard it, join me in suffering. And why? Why go through that? Well, the answer is pretty simple. latest data I saw shows that one in five marriages will end in divorce. One in five. That's deplorable. If you had a cure for divorce and you knew it would work, would you share it with some marriage that was in trouble? Would you consider doing that? I hope so. Alright. One in eight people suffer some migraines. I'm one of them. I hate them. They're debilitating. Make you dysfunctional. The pain is bad. You can't think straight. If you had a perfect cure that worked 100% of the time for migraines, would you share that with somebody who had a migraine? Good for you. Alright. The statistics of death are even more impressive than the statistics of divorce or the statistics of migraine. One out of every one dies. That is our fundamental human problem. I don't know how we're going to die, but we're all going to die. And we deplore that. Because God has set eternity in our hearts, and we don't want to die, and we know deep down, regardless of what our belief system is, it's not supposed to be that way. And what Paul says here in 2 Timothy is that in Christ, God has brought to light life and immortality. Jesus Christ has destroyed death. He has solved our death problem and given us hope of life that starts now and lasts through eternity. Now why would we not share that cure for our ultimate human problem of death? I can really only think of two reasons. Either we don't care enough. Perhaps through social media or talk radio, we've been taught to view other people who share different opinions on sexuality or politics. Or what morality is supposed to look like as people to be labeled as enemies and people to be yelled at and people to be hated instead of sinners to be saved. And if that's the case then maybe we need to ask God, light the fire in my heart again to love people like Jesus loved people. He saw lost people and he didn't say yuck, He said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. There is a sea of lost people in our country today. Have you noticed that? And they need Jesus. And we need to have that fire of love in our heart that comes only from God that cares enough, that cares enough to share the cure. Or maybe, the other reason that I can think of that maybe we don't, is because we're not quite convinced that it's true and then we need the spirit to light the fire that was in the spirit of Paul that said, You know, Timothy, everything I knew as a young man it turned out to be wrong. So I might know much, but I do know this one thing. I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've trusted to him until that day. That glorious day that he returns to take us all before his judgment seat and assign us our eternal destiny. And Paul knew where his destiny was going to be. Paul was absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ was returning to judge the living and the dead and that Jesus was going to award him by his grace eternal life. And if we're not yet convinced of that, with every fiber of our being, we need to ask God to light that fire and make us aware that that is ultimately reality, that the gospel is not only good news, but it is ultimate truth. If you're cold, then join the crowd. We're all either there or we've been there, and there is no judgment here. But it is time to fan a flame a flame that God has already lit. And if this church can be of assistance to you in any way in rekindling that fire, that fire from Jesus Christ, from His Spirit, then won't you please come while we stand and sing.
1: I stand to praise you, but I fall on my knees. My My spirit spirit is willing. willing. But, but my flesh, flesh is so weak. Light the fire, light the fire in, my in my soul. Fan, the soul. Fan the flame make me make old. Lord, you know, old. Lord you know, just where, I've, where been. I've been. So light the fire in my heart again. again. I feel in your arms world around, world me. around me. As the power of your healing begins, your spirit moves right through me like a mighty rushing wind. Light the fire in my soul. fire in my heart.